Hey folks, Ryan Kennedy here. Welcome back to the show. I have an amazing interview in store today with a leader in the functional medicine space, Dr. Justin Marcajani, who works with a wide variety of patients, everything from athletes to everyday people with chronic health challenges. And I love Dr. Justin's approach, really taking a holistic lens and, you know, looking at a lot of the uh, underlying barriers to health and really helping his patients in that regard. So Justin is a wealth of knowledge, and today's topic specifically, we're going to be more focused on gut imbalances, you know, things like candida and fungal overgrowth, as well as other common gut issues that are culprits to a lot of people's health challenges today. And also, this is top of mind for myself because I am on the tail end of a comprehensive mold detox protocol uh, I designed for myself after some mold exposure earlier this year. So it's something that has been really, uh, you know, prevalent for myself personally, as well as so many people I've worked with over the years in my practice. So brought on Dr. Justin, since he's a real expert in this stuff. So thanks for taking the time to be with us here, Dr. Justin. Hey, Ryan, thanks so much for having me. Really excited to be on the podcast today. So you've been in clinical practice for quite some time. How often do you see patients with a, a fungal overgrowth or, or yeast overgrowth? That's a great question. I mean, Almost every patient has some level of a digestive stress, right? The longer someone has stress going on in their life, that usually creates imbalances in their ability to break food down, digest food, hydrochloric acid enzyme, biliary insufficiency. Of course, if you add some antibiotics in there, some, some poor diet, then that just kind of creates the perfect feeding ground for general dysbiosis, right? Bad bacterial imbalances. And then of course, you know, you always have the right to have more than one thing happening at the same time. So usually if there's bad bugs on the bacterial side, you're going to typically have a, a yeast or fungal overgrowth as well. So it's, it's significant. I mean, I would say at least a third of the time based on lab criteria, meaning we run a stool test and we see some candida or running an organic acid test. We're seeing some D-arabinitol or, or D-arabinose, which is a candida metabolite. These are all good signs clinically. Now we may also have other signs like, um, chronic dandruff issues, fungal nails, again, uh, typically toenails and fingernails may be a little bit more separate, especially if someone walks around in a locker room and wears sandals, that may be more of an outside issue. But if you see skin issues and hair issues, it's a good sign that there's some internal candida a thrush, the coating on the, the tongue and such, the white coating tongue. Another good indication that there could be some candida internally as well. So those are kind of my big signs. And I would see probably one third of the time be a lab analysis, but it's probably much higher. It's probably at least half. Wow. Yeah. And a lot of people are unaware of this. You know, I remember growing up playing sports and even in college where I'd get on and off athlete's foot and never think much of it because, you know, half the guys on the team have athlete's foot yeah. and come to find out years later, as I dive into functional medicine, that it really came back to some fungal overgrowth I had in the body uh, from a young age. I just didn't ever realize that really represented itself symptomology wise as kind of these chronic um, athlete's foot for me, but I know it can be jock itch for some other, someone else, or like you said, dandruff, a lot of these topical fungal issues. Um, so, and, and one of the things that I realized too early on when I was helping people is oftentimes you'll get people who relapse, even when they're keeping the diet pretty clean, even when they're actually, you know, addressing the fungus or the, the candida overgrowth, what do you find is the, the most common culprit to, to those types of scenarios? So you're talking about in regards to being a solution or in regards to being a cause? In regards to being a cause for relapse, you know, when someone is constantly in this back and forth of, you know, taking herbs to knock out the candida, then a year or two later, taking more herbs and just on this constant roller coaster battle uh, with fungal issues. It's a great question. So some people, they kind of get myopic and they think, oh, it's only a candida issue. Therefore, we're going to focus on candida. There could be, I find 
candida and H. pylori tend to happen together. You may have SIBO, right? Small intestinal bacterial overgrowth along with small intestinal fungal overgrowth. So again, some of the herbs overlap, right? Oil of oregano tends to be antibacterial. So you want to make sure there's no other underlying infections that are, are being unaddressed. And I would say really looking at kind of your carbohydrate tolerance. Some people, when we do herbs, we're like knocking the candida levels down, but they're, you're never going to get it to zero, right? So there may be a tiny bit and maybe a little bit too much carbs for whatever that is for you. Maybe it's a serving of starch that may be too much and start mm -hmm. to feed some of these microbes back up. So ideally you want to knock it down, make sure there's no other peripheral infections there as well, like other bacterial or parasite issues, and then kind of figure out what your carb tolerance is. Cause some people, they just don't have a super high tolerance. Like if they just eat like a day of cheating, right? They may start to have some fungal symptoms the next day. So you just got to figure out how sensitive you are. Make sure you have some good indications that, to, that you're knocking things down. So stool tests sometimes may miss candida a bit. And so that's where I like some of the organic acid testing, looking at like D-arabinitol or D-arabinose, because it's a really good candida metabolite. So I like that one as well. And then um, if there's any other skin issues, or hair issues, those are other good indicators that you may need to go longer in the treatment. Got it. And in terms of nutrition, you mentioned a low carb, and obviously most people are aware sugars and excessive refined carbohydrates and alcohol are really fuel for the fire for, for these types of gutting 100%. conditions. Yeah. Um, what do you see clinically when it comes to cutting these things out uh, for you know two months, three months, four months? Is it just case by case in terms of what you see with success in terms of the length of time someone needs to be ultra strict on their diet to really get these things in check so out of the gate candida does release chemicals that make you want to crave sugar so when you have a high level of candida overgrowth and then you're trying to make these changes it's always a little bit harder because the cravings that you're going to develop and so it's it's harder to kind of get off some of the, the driving foods because of the cravings that candida creates now I, I find usually in one to two months you're going to see some significant improvements in starving some of these things out of course, like candida, some of the metabolites can throw off motility as well. So that can cause constipation and other problems as well. So you have to make sure you're, you're doing all like the common HCL enzyme type of um, digestive support. Mm -hmm. Also, if you tended to have more candida before, you know, how good was your diet? Were you letting candida kind of drive the show and eating a lot of processed food? It's going to be harder if you are more keto or more fat adapted and you had a candida still. Well, you're already doing a lot of good things. That's where the herbs are going to really come into play and you really have to work on killing things. So it just depends upon how, how good or bad someone's lifestyle or diet is coming into it. And of course, there's usually going to be a combination with a lot, a lot of candida, usually antibiotics in the past yep. and not having used probiotics on the backside. So the common thing with antibiotics is you have this natural rebound overgrowth of candida that can happen if you don't have good probiotics after the fact. So um, poor diet, antibiotic usage in the past, and then also um, typically poor digestion, not breaking down proteins and fats adequately as well. But usually one to two months, you should be able to see a significant improvement. And then the question is like, you know, what's your carbohydrate tolerance after the fact? Yep. Makes, to makes total sense. And when it comes to kind of uh, treatment protocols, do you uh, have a significantly different approach if you're working with candida, like you mentioned, high arabinose on the uh, oat test versus more of a, a fungal issue where, you know, they might not have a candida overgrowth. It may not be the yeast is the problem. It's more of a fungal issue. Do you still utilize the same herbs, same dietary approaches, pretty similar strategy in that regard? You have fungus, right? Like 
fungus is like the big umbrella underneath fungus you have yeast right so yep. fungus is the kind of the bigger umbrella so it'd be good to look at make sure there's no like aspergillus mold colonies things like that so an organic or good organic acid test that'll look at high levels of aspergillus or kind of more of a, a fungal mold colonization so it's nice to look at that you can also look at the inner environment like you talked about some mold issues in your home so i'd want to really dive into that on the history you may want to run you know, a mold plate test and just see if there's anything going on internally in the environment. So those would give me good things. Also, I ask questions like, you know, how do you feel when you're outside of your home? When you, when you leave for a week or so, if you're on business or if you're on vacation, do you notice any weird symptoms improve outside of, you know, just general stress reduction, anything improve that you can think of? And usually people are like, oh yeah, when I left for like two days, I noticed so much less brain fog and I just felt better. So those are all, you know, important things to look at. And you mentioned oregano oil being one of the herbs you use. Uh, what would you say are some of the top supplements that you you implore in this type of scenario? Um, both you know things to kill things off as well as uh, probiotics. So with different candida things, I mean you have things like oil of oregano, which is very powerful. You mm -hmm. have things like undecanoic acid, like from castor bean oil, that's really powerful. Things like silver can be great, especially because they they help with biofilms and they help the herbs actually work better. Things like ginger, are wonderful. Um, caprylic acid, which is really good. That's also like a fatty acid. Um, thyme is excellent as well. Um, what else do I use? Clove is another really good essential oil on the candida side. Ginger is also really good. Ginger is also antibacterial and antibiofilm. And so you, I, think, I think those would be the big ones out of the gates. And will you just mix a combination of all these things together where you try one at a time and kind of rotate through? Like what's your, what's your approach in that regard? Good question. So, and also, um, grapefruit seed extract is, is really good too. Yeah. It depends because I see patients, they may have H pylori, a parasite infection, SIBO and candida. So it just depends kind of how many different infections they have and kind of how symptomatic they are. And so we may deal with more of the H pylori bacterial H um, parasite stuff first. And I'll typically kind of we focus more on those infections out of the gates because they're higher up the intestinal tract. And then I'll come in with yeast stuff, maybe day 60 to 90 or so. And so it really depends upon kind of what the clinical presentation looks like, how many bugs or gut stressors are going on. But I tend to periodize yeast overgrowth kind of later in the treatment, or we'll do it side by side, depending on what's happening. So if we have H. pylori, we may use things like bismuth, um, mastic gum, right? Different things like that. If we have bacterial overgrowth, you know, things like different types of berberines are wonderful. Parasitic issues, maybe more wormwood black walnut hull. So there's different herbs for different types of infections. Obviously these herbs tend to be antimicrobial. So they're going to cross there's, you know, an herb that's antibacterial will probably still have some antiviral or antifungal or antiparasitic properties. It's just kind of what their, what their more hallmark signature is. And so then we'll tend to periodize the fungal stuff later at the end. Yeah, no, make, makes sense. They all, they do have a lot of broad spectrum activity. These, these different that's herbs correct. and botanicals. Now, when it comes to the probiotic side of things, there's really three kind of categories of probiotics from my understanding. You got your yep. lacto bifido blends, you got your Cyphermyces yep. boulardii, and then you have your yep. spore forming yep. uh, soil based. And would, would you kind of side towards one of those? Do you implement a few at the same time when it comes to just re-inoculating the microbiome with the good guys? Great question. So just having good levels of beneficial probiotics help because they are going to produce various acids and they're going to shift the pH in the intestinal tract in a way that makes it harder for candida to grow. Candida tends to like more alkaline environment, right? We know this 
women's birth control pills are notorious for alkalizing or having an alkalizing effect in the vaginal canal with high levels of various hormones, right? Estrogen, et cetera. Women know, or it's a common side effect of being on birth control pills of getting yeast overgrowth or a vaginal yeast infection. Why? Because of the shifting of the pH in the vaginal canal. Well, same thing, probiotics shift the gut tract um, pH as well, right? Lactobacillus acidophilus literally translates to acid loving. So there's a acidic type of shift in the pH. So that makes it harder for bugs and yeast to grow out of the gates. There's some type of beneficial probiotics um, like Saccharomyces boulardii is excellent. It's kind of more in a beneficial yeast category that tends to actually crowd out, tends to push out more of these critters, which is very, very helpful. And so I tell patients when we're dealing with yeast issues, we want to one, starve them out, two, wipe them out or kill them with herbs, and three, crowd them out and shift the microbiome so it's a more inhospitable place for these bugs to grow. Makes total sense. And would you- If you don't shift the environment or shift the immune system, then your higher likelihood for these things to come back. Do you have any experience using Saccharomyces cerevisiae, uh, commonly called uh, Epicor? It's it's kind of a, similar to the Saccharomyces boulardii in that it's a, supposed to be a healthy forming yeast. And I've heard mixed opinions about people using it in the you know in a candida or gut imbalance scenario versus staying away from it. I've seen that. I haven't. I don't have a lot of experience um, utilizing it. How about yourself? Uh, I, I'm kind of on the fence. I, I err, err on the side of caution and don't use it in these scenarios because I always am hesitant to throw more yeast into the equation when someone has a yeast problem, but I get the exactly. with the whole crowding it out. So I was just curious if that would fall into that category as well. Uh, and then with the soil-based spore forming probiotics, is that something that you utilize more in cases of SIBO where there's too much bacteria in the, in the small intestine? Yeah, it just depends, right? I always look for like probiotic intolerance symptoms in patients. So if someone's like, yeah, when I have a kombucha or like some sauerkraut, I really feel bad. Like, you know, these are patients that, you know, there's a lot of knowledge out there that like probiotics are good, right? Like most people are aware of that. And so people that are more health conscious, they've usually tried that. And they're like, oh yeah, when I had this probiotic or this fermented food, it bloated me up. It made me feel bad. And these are people that are like kind of lost because people are thinking like probiotics should help me. And then it makes them worse. So they just feel totally insecure because everything they're told that's helpful is actually hurting them. And so then I always really ask questions on that and really assess that. That always tells me there's a lot of SIBO. There's a lot of bacterial overgrowth. And so out of the gates, a lot of times starving it out with making diet changes and killing it, that may allow them to be able to handle like probiotics, like your lactobacillus bifido blends, but I always tend to err on the side of at least doing spore-based probiotics out of the out of the gates. And this may be like your bacillus coagulans, subtilis, clausii, mm-hmm. uh, your bacillus lichenformis. These are your kind of your spore-based strains. And so they tend to be a little bit more tolerated by people that have that probiotic intolerance and that SIBO. Got it. Yeah. And have you had any scenarios where the herbs didn't work for knocking out someone's fungal or, or candida issue, or is it pretty darn high success rate in your experience? Well, I would just say every now and then you're going to have people that are just resistant to certain things. Right. And so I always try to um, have a good retest. And so sometimes you just see major symptom improvement, like their bloating and gas and brain fog improve, but you'll redo some of the organic acid tests and their levels are still high. It's like, okay, well, we still got to hit that again. And we may not have hit the fungus or yeast all the way. And we may have knocked down some of the bacteria. So Usually if we're moving the needle in regards to symptoms, there's some shift in the microbiome. We may not be picking it up on the test though, right? Mm -hmm. But it's definitely possible. So if I I do a round two and 
we're um, going to do a round two. I'm definitely going to shift around some of the herbs and I'm going to make sure we also add in things that help with the biofilms too. Especially if there was some resistance, I'm going to make sure we add in more silver and more ginger or something to really, or some kind of a systemic enzyme taken away from food to really shift the biofilms so the yep. herbs work better. Yeah, that's interesting on the colloidal silver side of things with the biofilm. I've always utilized um, biofilm disrupting enzymes, taking on an empty stomach uh, and found those to be pretty effective for that and helping to reduce die-off symptoms as well when someone's in pretty bad shape with one of these overgrowths. Uh, what are your, what's your opinion, uh, on antifungal drugs? You know, oftentimes people get prescribed, you know, Ziflucan or itraconazole, uh, you know, to deal with some of these fungal infections. Do you think they're pretty, pretty bad drugs or do you think they're fairly benign? It's a great question. So you have some medications like amphotericin B, which is like more localized in the gut. Then you have your Diflucan and your Nystatin. Um, and I, I've seen people have more die off with those medications. They are powerful. They do work. Yeah. I've heard of some side effects with them. I forget who was it. There was a couple of doctors talking about some negative neurological side effects affecting the brain. I think it was in, in some of these systemic antifungals. Uh, I've used them in the past. I've used them myself testing on it, you know, early on. Uh, I just find the herbs one, they tend to work just as good in, in my opinion. And two, when you take herbs, they also have, there's some that have anti-biofilm effects and they also work on a lot of the efflux pumps. And so when you knock down anything on the fungal side, you're also going to be affecting bacteria. And so by having things that affect the efflux pumps on the bacteria, that's kind of how the bacteria kind of survives. They have efflux inhibitors on there that make the herbs uh, or make the antibiotics or the antimicrobials less powerful. But with the, a lot of the herbs, they tend to knock out the efflux pumps. The efflux pumps are like the equivalent to being in a canoe and the water comes into the canoe, right? You're sinking. The efflux pumps are like the, the bucket that you have that bails the water out, right? And so if you take away the bucket, you inhibit the efflux pumps, the herbs become more effective. Also, when you kill stuff, you actually create a lot of oxidative stress, right? Because you're mm -hmm. killing, it's a war in your intestines. And these medications, they don't really have any antioxidant properties, but a lot of these beneficial herbs, they have a lot of actually nutrient to value and a lot of antioxidant quality to it. And so you can help mitigate some of the oxidative damage that's happening from the killing with some of these antimicrobials. That's another beneficial thing. I think there's a lot of prescribers that may listen. It's like, I, I always would try to go with the herbs first and then maybe a medication down the road if we need. You made some great points. Totally agree. And, and Doug Kaufman's a guy who's wrote a lot about fungus and, you know, kind of being linked to a lot of disease and imbalance in people today. And he's uh, somewhat of a proponent of these pharmaceutical class of drugs talking about, you know, how the liver side effects is very much so a die off reaction and how, you know, they're just very aggressive. If you try the herbs, if you try the probiotics, you make some changes to your diet, you're still having some issues. It's a good kind of uh, last line of defense, so to say, if you implore the natural stuff and need something a little bit more, uh, that's a little bit harder of a punch. But I, I like is he, is he more in favor of the, the medications these days or more of the herbals? He's in favor of a short course of the medications, from my understanding, reviewing his work of doing, you know, a two to four week bout of, of like a Diflucan or of some Sporinox, and then switching over to the herbals and to things like the caprylic acid and bringing in some immune support like vitamin C, vitamin D, and changing up the diet throughout the course of that. He's big on his antifungal diet, which is, you know, essentially just a lower carbohydrate diet. Um, but that's yeah, what, what that's what he's said has worked really well. It's just kind of an initial phases bringing in the heavy hitters and then transitioning to more of a balanced lifestyle approach with some of these natural antifungals. Yeah, I think 
as long as you come in there and you really make a lot of diet changes out of the gates, like when I do any killing, kind of my six hour approach, the killing is always fourth because the first hour is removing the bad foods. Just by doing that, you're shifting the microbiome already, right? You're restricting yeah. foods that could be feeding things. You're decreasing inflammation, especially if you're coming into this with a standard American kind of crappy processed diet. It totally shifts the microbiome and inflammation and the immune system. The second is we're trying to work on digesting foods well, because even if you were on a decent diet, but if you're not breaking foods down, there's a putrefication, rancidification, fermentation process that's happening. And that food is just not getting broken down. And that creates stress as well. And then of course, if it's inflammation or there's hormonal issues where you're not able to deal with stress, you know, you want to have the adrenals and a lot of the gut lining support lined up. And then we come in there and do the killing. And then we have a month or two of head start. The immune system's more stable. Cortisols are more imbalanced gut barrier permeability is better, um, inflammation, immune response is better. And so then we have a much better result when we start going after the, the microbes than just like coming in on day one and just writing a prescription for a diflucan. That's when you're going to have a whole, you know, terrible outcome there typically because yeah. you're overwhelming the body. Yeah. And that's what typically where you're going to get a lot of the relapse too, because you're not making the long-term changes to actually fix the root of the problem. You're just killing a whole bunch of stuff off and then you end up recolonizing because you're still filling the system with all the fuel that these microbes need, the, you know, these, these different fungi need. So um, that makes total sense. One thing that I have been really interested in is nebulization. You know, I had an expert come on just a few weeks back, Dr. Thomas Levy talking about nebulized hydrogen peroxide. And, and that was very much in the context of killing off, you know, viral and respiratory infections, yeah. but also killing off, you know, mold exposure. Cause you're obviously breathing in these mold spores. If you, if it's environmental. So I started doing this myself, given the you know, tidbit I shared about having a little mold exposure earlier this year. Um, and I've also seen people nebulizing glutathione, nebulizing different herbal blends. Is this anything you incorporate in your practice for people that have had mold exposure? Yeah. Anytime someone has acute immune issues, especially with respiratory symptoms, nebulizing glutathione could be helpful. I have a great video on the topic where we, we do a, a reduced glutathione, usually one to 200 milligrams, something that's soluble. So I have a, a link to a product, justinhealth.com slash glutathione. You want one that's a reduced glutathione or a glutathione mixed with a bicarb. That yep. way, when you add the saline, it either blends or it instant, instantaneously dissolves, or you want one that's already compounded. So it's already liquid with the saline. And then you add that to your nebulizer. I think I have the, uh, the Philips Inospire one, which is great. And then you can um, just breathe that in usually four minutes and it's done. That's very helpful because it's anti-inflammatory. Um, the glutathione helps with superoxidus mutase in the lungs, which is a natural disinfectant, mm -hmm. upregulates. There's a lot of studies just nebulize glutathione and lung inflammation. It really modulates all the interleukins and cytokine and inflammation. So it's very powerful. And then you can also do some glutathione um, nebulization as well. Now you want to typically take, sorry, um, uh, hydrogen peroxide nebulization as well, you want to take it down to about a 0.1%. So if you go get a 3% hydrogen peroxide at the local drug food store, you'll do about a quarter teaspoon of that. And then you'll do six and a quarter teaspoons of saline. So one quarter teaspoon of the hydrogen peroxide, 3% to six and a quarter teaspoon on the saline. And that will bring it down to about a 0.1%. And that has some really good disinfectant antimicrobial qualities too. Very interesting on the dilution. So what Thomas Levy's seen and shared um, on the show here is he uses a straight 3%. He said some people are more sensitive, need a you know half saline dilution. So it'd be about 1.5%. 
Um, and I tried the, the straight 3% has zero irritation, no issues. Is there a reason you want to dilute it so much? Uh, just some doctors on the, that I've seen that I followed find that 0.1% is very effective. I found patients that did the hydrogen peroxide at the full grade over time, they got more nasal mucosa irritation, more bloody noses, more irritation than mucosa. Oh, okay. 3%. So I mean, strong. Yeah. I mean, it, it's powerful. 3%. I mean, I, I use 3% as my mouthwash every day and it's powerful. It tingles the it tingles my mouth and my tongue yeah. mucosa significantly. So some of the data is just saying, you know, the clinical sharing of data online is saying about 0.1%. Great to know. Great to know. And in regards to kind of talking about some of these oxidative therapies, do you ever implement ozone for, for patients you work with? Do you, do you use, you know, medical ozone, whether it be, uh, you know, an oral form like an ozonated oil or doing rectal insufflation or any of these other types of ozone modalities? I do not. I mean, I've used it, recommend it like um, in a gel form. If someone has like inflammation in the gum area or tooth, it can be helpful to topically rub it in there. Yep. I know some people, you know, get the ozone machines do the rectal or do an IV. It's, you have, there's a lot of antimicrobial, anti, you know, let's just call, put them in, in the killing criteria supports. Sure. And, you know, it's just not one that I've, I've dove into. Most people that I see doing it tend to do it more on the IV side and, you know, on the telemedicine, that's not quite as conducive yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, for me, but I've heard some decent things about it for all kinds of different things on the yeast side and, and viral side. How about yourself? I love ozone. I have a medical ozone generator here in my office, but I use it more personally. I don't use it with people I work with. How do you take it? Do you nebulize it or? No, no, no. You never want to breathe in ozone. It'll, it's a lung irritant. So I will use okay. it. I'll nebulize or I'll ozonate water, distilled water, and I'll yep. use that as a mouthwash or I'll drink that to kill off stuff in the kind of upper um, GI tract. I'll use uh, rectal insufflation where you're blowing ozone gas up your butt. And that yep. is a very, uh, very good way to do it systemically without the IV. Mm -hmm. It's about 95% of, as effective if you ask, you know, Dr. Schallenberger and some of these other really well-respected ozone docs. And then I'll use it too. I'll do limb bagging and, you know, a few other things in that regard and just find it to be really good uh, therapy, but it's no, it's not very accessible because the generator and all the equipment, it's a couple thousand dollars. So most people, it's not very feasible financially to go and buy a whole get up uh, where I'll recommend to some people I work with to buy the ozonated hemp oil or ozonated sunflower oil, which you could take in a capsule form. You can get the oil itself, like you shared, use it topically as an antiseptic, use it on the gums, like you said. Uh, that's another yeah. effective way to bring it in. That's not going to cost you a couple grand and, you know, still be a good way to keep ozone around for its many benefits. Um, I, I want to wrap then up if you here. did it, if you did it like, um, you know, rectally or IV, yeah. are you concerned about having any systemic re rebound overgrowth issues? Cause it's happening. It's kind of coming in in a more systemic fashion. Have you seen it negatively impacts the gut microbiome at a higher level than you know, I haven't. And it's supposedly from, you know, and I had an ozone specialist on the show a couple months back. It, it more targets the pathogenic bacteria and doesn't seem to be too big of a problem to the good bugs. But with any of these natural killers, same with oregano oil, same with some of these herbal antimicrobials, same with the hydrogen peroxide, you're going to have some die off of, of bugs that you may want to keep around to some degree. Um, but it doesn't seem to be nearly as harmful as like an antibiotic or, you know, something that just kind of wipes out everything in its path. And right. it also depends on the concentration that you're, you're using. Um, so for the rectal ozone, I like to keep it below 40 gamma for that specific reason. Um, but it also helps with 
many other things from immune support to circulation to detoxification. It has just a lot of a lot of research out of Europe. It's not as common in the US because it's virtually free. You can't patent it. So there's no pharmaceutical interest in ozone. And because of that, it's, you know, not a lot of awareness, not a lot of research here in the States that's done on it. But European physicians have been using it more re regularly in, in clinical studies. And so there's a lot of good research out there. And so the main application for you is going to be via the uh, via, via, via the, the insertion rectally? Is that how the big way you're getting it in? Or are you doing an IV at all? I'm not doing an IV at all. That's the main way. So just way. In, in rectal. And, and, and ozonated water. I find that in the water. is a good medium to carry the ozone and use kind of like what you do with your hydrogen peroxide mouthwash. Yeah. Same yeah. type of thing. Great for uh, dental hygiene and, and, you know, a lot of holistic dentists. You know, actually can you utilize. swallow that or do you just rinse and spit it out? You can swallow it. Yeah. Okay. And, and that That's actually cool. kills off bugs in, you know, kind of the upper GI tract. Um, by the time the That's water great. makes its way down to, you know, the colon, it's not really uh, active with ozone at that point because it's been processing through your system and turning into yeah. ozonides. Um, so it's a little bit different, but the thing I want to wrap up sense. with is uh, toenail fungus. So I've had a number of patients I've worked with, with stubborn toenail fungus for years and years, they can't get rid of. And during my bout of mold exposure, I had a little toenail fungus on one of my toes on my right foot, um, that I've had a hell of a time getting rid of despite clean organic acid tests, clean mycotoxin panel, you know, gut in great shape, feeling good, but uh, locally, the toenail fungus can be really stubborn. Do you have any ideas or strategies you've used for people to help kind of get rid of that? Yeah. So toenail fungus is difficult because number one, blood supply to the nails is very poor. So if you do something internally, the odds of it making its way at any potent level down to the toenail is just super low. And then of course, a lot of times the nail stuff, a lot of that may not be a reflection of your gut per se. It may just be like, I noticed I started to get some toenail issues because I literally in Austin, I would like be wearing sandals like all year long. Yeah, I'm so barefoot wearing, all the time. I was just wearing sandals all the time. And it's you sweat. And unless you're really rinsing and washing those sandals off all the time, it's just going to be a recipe to get a, a toenail fungal issue. So I will definitely have some toenail issues if I don't stay up with um, typically like a fungal soak. So there's some decent herbs out there. There's some different blends that you can get. Um, I have two on my website that I, I recommend. There's one by uh, Long Creek Herbs. That's a really good one that you mix with eight ounces of apple cider vinegar. There's another one that I use on there that has a blend of like six or seven different herbs. I mean, it's oil of oregano, lavender, tea tree. Um, there's um, a couple others in there. And I typically mix that with hot water, eight ounces of apple cider vinegar. And then I soak my feet 15, 20 minutes. I find the soaking, you really have to soak your feet because the soaking allows whatever's in that soak to penetrate into the nail mm. and it allows also opens the nail up so then you can topically put something on there there's um hold on i got it here some of these pens that are out there that are pretty decent they're called um nail repair pens okay and they have three major ingredients in there it does not list it on here but i have them on my site in the recommended products links i don't sell them they're just on amazon but i have some of the links on there there's three ingredients that are pretty good i find that combining the soak with a fungal nail pen tends to be very helpful. And then you could also, instead of this, you could also just do a pure oil of oregano or a pure tea tree and rub that on there. The pen I find to be very effective and then it's just convenient because it's already ready to rock and roll. You twist it and then you put it on there. Yeah. But I find this is far better after you do a soak because the Makes nail sense. is just more porous mm -hmm. and you put it on there, it penetrates deeper and you got to stay with it. Cause I, I do find that 
when you start to see the nail, you'll whatever the wherever the nail is already fungalized, it's done. So what happens is you just start to see at the bottom, it starts to grow out clean at the bottom. So if your nail's growing, you have to see at the very bottom, it starts growing out clean. And then the old stuff just gets trimmed off as you cut your nails. And so you start to see clean nail come out. Yep. And that's the tricky part I've experienced firsthand is even if you're doing something that's working, you won't really see it working because the toenails grow so slow. I mean, it can take upwards of six months for the nail to grow out to where you're seeing all that new nail growth that's coming in healthy. So even if you're doing something diligently for a few weeks or even a few months, you might not see a lot of results. So then you're like, is this working? Should I change it up to something else? And so I've kind of had trouble with that as I shared my history of having on and off athlete's foot. As of recent, I've had some toenail fungus on one of my toes that I've been using some of these ozonated oils. I've tried some of the products you recommend um, studying your work, and I'll link those up in the show notes for people listening in with the kind of essential oil uh, Epsom salt type bath that you use, as well as the apple cider vinegar. Um, But man, it just starts to get, you know, it's not the most convenient thing to have to do these foot soaks every night. And then you're you're burning through apple cider vinegar at a crazy rate too. Yeah. I'm going to go do one afterwards. One, they're very relaxing, especially if you do it with the Epsom salts and the Mm -hmm. the eucalyptus and all the essential oils. Uh, It's very relaxing because the the Epsom salts are just pure magnesium. So it's very sedating, very relaxing. But what happens is that nail grows out and it's clean and clean and clean. If you don't keep up with it, the problem is the old stuff will spread down to the new, Uh. almost like a a wildfire. And so you got to keep up with it, keep up with it, keep up with it you got to really do it consistently for three months. If you don't, it's going to just start to go down again. Yep. Yep. So it's tough. Toenails are really, really tough. The medications are super hard on your liver. So these tend to work well. The soaks are probably the best way to do it. Just get like a, you know, a foot basin bin. I just buy a gallon of the um, Bragg's oil of um, Bragg's ACV. And I just do like four to eight ounces, some hot water. And then I add that Epsom salt or I'll do the um, long Creek herbs uh, formula. Those two are work really good. Great. Well, this has been awesome, Dr. Justin. I know we could talk all day, but I want to wrap things up here. We've shared a lot of good stuff uh, for people to tune in. Where is the best place for people to find you that may want to become a patient and work with you or just learn more through your videos and your information that you put out? I know you have a great podcast yourself. Yeah, thanks so much, Ryan. So if you head over to justinhealth.com, justinhealth.com, there's a little podcast button on there. Click that. You could subscribe as a uh, video button where you could subscribe to the YouTube channel as well. Kind of have a lot of long form conversations like this. I do a lot of live videos and interact with people live all the time, which is great. That's usually pretty unique in this uh, in this space. And then also I'm available worldwide for consultation support on the functional medicines that I've, I have host of colleagues and myself that will make myself available. So if you want to engage in a program or have some specific issues you want to work on, that'd be the best way to engage on that as little worker.j button you can click. Well, thanks for everything, man. It's been a pleasure having you on and look forward to staying connected. Hey, thanks so much, Ryan. Really enjoyed today's conversation, man. Take care. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode. If you found it helpful, please share it along to anyone else you believe it can serve. You can find the show notes and resources we discussed at ryankennedyshow.com. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review for the show. Your feedback helps to support me on my mission to positively impact as many people as possible with this information. Much love, everyone.